Ask not what your country can do for you. There's a last time I'm going to be in the lead. The Giants won the pass. Lepina, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning in to episode 22 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Yes, I knew he had this album. Yes, I listen to it every once in a while. Yes, there is an extra special connection to my father and my family. Not just because of this album, but because of how important the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was to me and my brothers growing up, and how often we listened to the race each year on the radio. Now, this will be a special format episode. Between segments of the album, I will read from an essay I wrote in college creative writing class in 1995. Yes, when I was 33 years old, and yes, as my radio career was winding down. So, get ready to turn left 800 times with Volume 22, The Indy 500. Each year in the month of May, Speedway owner Tony Hallman gives the command to start your engines to the gentlemen who race. They've made their pilgrimage to Indianapolis in search of speed, fame, and glory. 33 proud men will try, but only one will win. Most racing drivers say that their lifetime ambition will be fulfilled if only they might cross the finish line first at Indianapolis. Many have done so before my very eyes. This is Sid Collins speaking to you from the Master Control Tower at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, as I have done for more than 25 years. Each year, we've had the honor of broadcasting around the world to over 100 million people. My fine crew and I have covered the greatest spectacle in racing from before the green flag is waved to after the checkered flag has fallen to signal another winner will enter that very exclusive piece of Indiana real estate known as Victory Lane. But the track and the race were there long before our entry on the scene. Its history stretched all the way back to the start of this century. The enterprising city of Indianapolis played a major part in the early history of the automobile and was listed as the nation's second largest manufacturer of passenger cars. In Indiana, 250 different makes were produced with 64 of these being assembled in the Indianapolis area alone. 
An energetic businessman named Carl Fisher owned the very first car in Indianapolis before the turn of the century. He hit upon the idea of building a huge oval-shaped track six miles from downtown to be utilized as a proving ground. He reasoned that firms from all over the nation could test their products in racing and admission charges would make the track a paying proposition. The sprawling Presley Farm, used for growing corn in the Hoosier heartland, was bought by Fisher and several associates and a two and one half mile racetrack, surfaced with crushed rock and tar, took shape by midsummer. Balloon and motorcycle races preceded an accident-marred three-day racing meet in August, after which time the track was shut down. 3,200,000 bricks were laid by December 1909 to make it smoother and safer. Short races were run through 1910, but the crowds began to dwindle. Fisher and his partners came up with a plan to stage one major event on Memorial Day, May 30, 1911. The distance of 500 miles was determined since the race would take about seven hours and there would still be time for spectators to get to Indianapolis and back home again before dark. 75,000 fans turned out for the dawn to dusk extravaganza. Ray Haroon, design engineer for the Marmon Passenger Car Company, won that first race at a speed of almost 75 miles an hour. Haroon talked with us many years later in front of the Starting Tower Pagoda and he reminisced about his history-making day. Mr. Haroon, how, how long was the race in which you won in 1911? Well, it was about six hours and some odd minutes. Uh, and these days, we can pretty well cross the country and back in that right. time, can't we? That's right. How does the track look to you since the old days when you first raced here? Well, it looks a lot better. When I first raced here, it was brick and wasn't too smooth. What kind of a car did you have, sir? I was a Marmon. And have you noticed many improvements these days? Oh, yes. They only weigh about half as much and uh, about four times as much horsepower. In 1912, another local firm won, when a national, driven by a hometown boy, Joe Dawson, won the race at the expense of the great Ralph De Palma. De Palma led all but the first two laps and the final two, then tried to push his broken Mercedes to victory, but failed. Three years later, in 1915, he won the race, but he would always remember 1912 when he lost. Hard to forget for the uh, one I did not finish in 1912 because everyone likes to talk about it. That's right. Everyone reads about it. There have been more lines written, uh, written about the race that I did not win than it did on the one that I did win in 1915. Of course, they call it hard luck. Well, I often say that I don't think it was hard luck. It's just breaks of the game. Great European drivers like Jules Gou, René Thomas, and Dario Resta won pre-war races. But when racing resumed after World War I, names like Howdy Wilcox, Gaston Chevrolet, Tommy Milton, Joe Boyer, and Jimmy Murphy brought car names such as Frontenac, Miller, and Duesenberg to the public's attention. The speeds were fantastic. On a track designed for lap speeds of 75 to 80 miles an hour, Ralph De Palma's nephew, Peter DePaulo, won the race in 1925 with an average speed of over 101 miles per hour. Pete was ecstatic when we asked him about that day, which was to live in his heart forever. All through the race, I had the confidence that I was going to win, 
Matter of fact, I'd sing. I'd go down the back stretch singing, oh, boy, I'm lucky, I'll say I'm lucky. Get over, everybody, let me by. I didn't say nice words all the time, but uh, it was very, very interesting, and uh, they all thought I was going too fast, and the weather was terribly hot. It was 96 temperature, so you can imagine what the track temperature must have been. They said he'll never make it, he'll never hold it, but as a matter of fact, after the first 25 laps, I could look back the entire length of the home stretch, nobody in sight. And that's why I tell them I enjoy my most pleasant thrill. Every time I cross a line, all alone, 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 100 bucks, it was a marvelous feeling. Another man destined for speedway immortality was a relief driver in 1911. He had his career cut short, but he left for Europe in World War I to join the U.S. Air Corps in France. He came home as America's leading air race, never to drive a race car again. And now excerpts from my essay, Right Behind the Fence, coming out of turn two. My annual trips to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the first week of qualifying still remain special memories for me. I was only eight years old the first of nine times that my dad and I went to the brickyard. I remember getting into the car that Friday afternoon that first year with Dr. Gasper and his two boys. I thought we were going to see some horses in another state. Well, thanks to my grandfather, at that age I only associated racing with horses. The beautiful city of Indianapolis was seven hours from my hometown of Painesville, Ohio. Four if my dad was driving. Since he owned the country squire station wagon, he drove every year. I always enjoyed the fact that the car was half full of people and half full of food, beer, and pop. We always broke out mom's pizza even before we got to the freeway. We always got out of school early for these trips, so we hadn't eaten in nearly two hours. The drive was filled with the telling of army stories. By the tallness of his tales, my dad would have made a cartoon-like mess sergeant, even though he served during the peace of the late 50s. My two brothers started going with us in later years. About the third year of these trips, my Uncle Bob and a couple of my cousins started making the trek with us. My uncle's sense of humor led to some unforgettable impromptu comedy routines with my dad, like the time they had the clerk at a Hardee's convinced that there might be something wrong with the $20 bill my dad was using. He had admonished my uncle for not oiling the machine. Hey, all these bills have the same serial number on them, my dad said. Ah, no one will notice, my uncle responded. Of course, the manager made sure to check them very carefully. And now, let's hear some more racing. In my early years, before I first attended the 500-mile race, why, I uh, had the opportunity of sitting on the curb over in Terre Haute and watching the uh, old automobiles on their way to Indianapolis to attend the race. And it wasn't until about 1914 until my father brought me along and let me see my first race here at Indianapolis. In 1946, the first Indianapolis 500 was run under the auspices of Tony Holman and Wilbur Shaw. And George Robeson became the first post-war winner at an average speed of 114 miles per hour. In 1947, Moy Rose drove the Blue Crown Special to his second Indy victory. His teammate, Bill Holland, led most of the race until a confusing easy sign message on the pit board caused him to slow down and unknowingly relinquish his lead to Rose. Holland came in second. In 1948, the finish was the same. Rose first, Bill Holland second. But 1949 was to be Holland's year. From my post on the number one turn, the cars roared past me on the pace lap. Here they come around the south-west turn, 
32 cars were four in this pace car has left the field around an inch southwest turn into the south straightaway as the drivers get the feel of their cars. On some, Lady Luck will shine just as the sun is shining this very moment. The rainbow color mingles with the asphalt of the 660-foot south straightaway directly in front of us. Today there are seasoned veterans in these cars, as well as some youngsters flying their wings for the first time. Here comes the entire pace lap, the 33 cars in front of us, and there goes the Red Oldsmobile pace car. In a few moments, they start the 200 trips around this magnificent speedway course. George Lynch in 26 to Justin's goggles, Jack McGrath, written seats as they pass us here. Now the spectators in the back stretch are going to get their first glimpse of the splendorous procession. So for a verbal view of the back stretch, back to the Pagoda. The race began with top contenders Duke Nalen and Rex Mays dueling for the lead in two of the fabulous supercharged Novi cars, which have become great favorites. Nalen quickly pulled away from Mays and built up a terrific lead by the end of 23 laps to have his efforts thwarted by an accident. Jim Shelton described Nalen's plight. This treacherous northeast turn has claimed another car, Duke Nalen, the powerful Novi number 54, after setting a blazing speed, lost the wheel coming into the northeast turn. The car skidded immediately, smacked the wall sideways and burst into flames. It bounded off into another spin, came back striking the wall head-on this time. Now at this point, Duke looked as if he loosened his safety belt and either jumped or was thrown from the racer. The car continued pancaking the wall and finally came to rest flush against the outside wall. Now at this time, fuel leaking from the wrecked car spread over the entire track, making it necessary for cars rounding the curve to cut at least 10 feet onto the sod on the inside of the track. They had to there to keep from going through that wall of flame. Some cars, however, had to go through the wall of flame caused by the leaking fuel. No other way around as too many cars were bunched on the inside turf. No cars, no cars caught on fire, however. Very fortunate. Duke, meanwhile, scrambled to his feet and was picked up by an ambulance. The fire is out now, but the car, a complete wreck, remains flattened against the wall. And later in Victory Lane, Hollywood movie star Linda Darnell was on hand to kiss the tenacious winner, Bill Holland. In 1950, 21 drivers took their rookie tests including the great Bill Vukovic and another eventual winner, Bob Swikert. The little dynamo, five foot four inch cigar smoking Walt Faulkner, made history by establishing a pole speed of 134.343 miles per hour in a car owned by J.C. Agajanian, a man who was to become one of the most flamboyant race car owners over the next 25 years. We talked with Walt. Walt, you seem to have some kind of a routine here that's setting the pace here at the Speedway this year, and that's holding that rubber ball in your right hand. Will you tell us why you do that? Well, it's just an exercise for the hands and uh, the wrists and the fingers. Just keep them sharp all they the time. They keep on squeezing all the time. That's right. And since you brought that small rubber ball about the size of a ping-pong ball to the track, the other drivers have been taking up the same idea. Well, I've seen quite a few of them floating around. Well, you can go in the rubber ball business then. After I think I will. Racing. How about your superstition about peanuts, Walt? Well, that dates back a long time ago. I'm taking them view of them, period. You don't like peanuts around a race car? Not at all. Do you mind the color green? That's another race driver's superstition. Well, I don't like it. And how about women in the pits? Well... I don't like them around the car either. No. There was a rumor of a cracked block in the car of 1949 AAA driving champion Johnny Parsons on the morning of the 1950 race. But it was Parsons who pulled into Victory Lane after rain fell at 345 miles. It was the first time since 1926 that the race had been red flagged and stopped because of rain. That year, film stars Clark Gable and Barbara Stanwyck were on hand to make the movie To Please a Lady. We were all in Victory Lane. 
I was there for the first time. It was a mad dash down the steps of the old pagoda through the rain-soaked crowds. As I leaned over the white-hot exhaust pipe of Parsons' car, I singed my trousers. The crowd was pushing me closer against the car. This may explain the very brief interview with Johnny Parsons. Another great big kiss coming in here from Barbara Stanwyck. She's really hanging on. It's the fourth one she's given now. Johnny. Well, I'm awfully glad that we won the race, but as I said before, I'm sorry it rained. But that's about all I got to say. Would have been cool to have been to a race back then. Okay, let's talk about this album. It's Van Camp's Pork and Beans Presents Great Moments from the Indy 500. It's on the Fleetwood Records label, number FMS 1006. It's a vinyl LP, was released in 1974. Its genre is non-music and style is spoken word. The 500 theme was arranged by Joe Jordan. It was edited by Bob Lindgren and Jeff Landroach. Uh, the associated engineer was Paul Bender. The chief engineer was Bill Ferruzzi. Executive producer, Victor F. Mancini. Its illustration was done by Dick Hamilton, who I really want to single out for an outstanding job. The outside cover and the inside gateway mural was really, really well done. Uh, the researcher and consultant was Al Blomker. was written by Don Dorson. It was also written and edited by Donald Davidson. It was written, edited by, and narrated by Sid Collins. All right. Let's actually read some of the liner notes off of this. Actually, the, all of the liner notes. Gentlemen, start your engines. That's track owner Tony Holman's announcement each May that sends 33 ambitious men toward achieving racing's most coveted honor, winning the Indianapolis 500. This recording, Great Moments from the Indy 500, takes you through some of the exciting moments from this great race. You'll hear broadcast excerpts and interviews with famed drivers such as Bill Vukovic, Jimmy Clark, and A.J. Foyt as they actually took place at the track. The history of the race from 1911 on will unfold before you, and emotion will run high as you hear the stories of men for whom the Indy 500 is the climax of a lifetime of work, hopes, dreams, and sacrifice. Through the years, virtually every aspect of the Indianapolis 500 has increased in magnitude. In 1911, the race was won with a top speed of 74 miles per hour. The purse was $27,550. In 1974, total prize money was more than $1 million, and the winning average speed had increased to over 158 miles per hour. Such is the nature of the Indy 500 today, an event which challenges both man and machine. We hope you will enjoy this informative and exciting album about one of America's favorite races, the Indianapolis 500, the greatest spectacle in racing. Now, one of the things I want to tell you is I myself have never actually had the opportunity to get to the race. I've only been to the first day of time trials, which were important because that was the only day that you could win the pole position. My dad did get to the race several times, including that famous race in 1974 that had so many deaths, uh, that had a death and so many major injuries on the very first turn and kept getting postponed that he actually had to come home and never got to see the race. 
Okay, let's talk about the Discogs value of this album. Uh, the highest came in at $25, lowest at a dollar, and the median at $5.10. Found it on eBay for $15.50, and Amazon had it for $34.75. There we go. Typical Amazon coming in awfully high. My dad's album was well played. I know I used to pull it out of the cupboard every once in a while. It's a it's a gateway album, you know, meaning it opens up. It's in poor condition only because there's a small tear along the the bottom. The album is also in poor condition, so I'll I'll value my dad's album at a quarter. Okay. Let's go back to the track. In 1953, the heat was stifling as race fans wilted in 98 degree weather. The steel monsters became streaking saunas while track temperatures climbed to 130 degrees. There were relief drivers for relief drivers that day, several of whom were carried off to the field hospital suffering from heat prostration. The popular Carl Scarborough collapsed in the pit area and succumbed. It was so hot in our broadcasting booth, we stripped off our shirt and shoes with a handkerchief around our forehead to keep perspiration from dripping in our eyes. But it must have been unbearable for the drivers. Now let's take it down to Luke Walton in the north section of the pits. Luke? Yes, sir, and standing right here now is Jimmy Rathman to tell us what happened to his car. Jimmy? Well, nothing happened to the car. The car's running real good. It was just, I got sick from the heat. It's awful hot, and I was breathing fumes from the engine. How about going back into the race, Jimmy? Do you plan on going back into the race? Yes, I do. I feel good right now. I didn't get tired. I just... Got sick to all these big roadsters, this new type of car, why it's pretty hot in there, and the boys are just getting sick from the heat. Undaunted by a stroke of hard racing luck the previous year, Bill Vukovic returned to the speedway to lead all but five laps. His desire to win was intense, as described by Luke Walton. Well, you can call Vuk the Iron Man of the 500-mile race of all time, because they flagged him in, and just a little while ago, Henry Banks told me that he was standing by for the Novi relief, and then just about 20 minutes later, he came down to the Vukovic crew, the fuel injection uh, special crew, and they had him with his helmet on, ready to relieve Vukovic. When Vukovic came in, he said he did not want any relief. So he is the Iron Man of the race, and there he goes back on the track. He's in the lead, and he's going to drive it himself without any relief. This is the hottest day we've had in Hoosierland since Wilkie accepted the nomination in Elwood back in 1940. Back to the Pagoda. And it was Bill Vukovic who steered his fuel injection special into victory lane at a speed of almost 129 miles per hour. He's taking the helmet off and the thing is really scarred and boy does he look like he's had a day out here. Wilbur Shaw whispers a few comments and his wife Esther is right here to whisper a few words. Esther, would you tell Bill to move over here so we can get a word from Bill Coast? Okay, coast to coast, can you say just a word about how you feel on winning the race? Oh, it feels all right. Everybody's happy to win. Bill, did you think you'd want relief any time in the race? Think you want relief any time in the race? No. Never want relief. There's an Iron Man, folks, and he's really tired and he can't hear a single thing. Jack McGrath became the first man to qualify at a speed of over 140. He grabbed the pole in 1954 as only four miles an hour separated the slowest from the fastest car in the starting field. Anticipating a closely contested race, we talked to Gentleman Jack. Jack, I know that sports riders, especially automobile sports riders around the country, will comment that this is very similar to Roger Bannister's four-minute mile on the dirt and on the cinders. You're driving over 140 at the speedway. How do you feel about it? Well, it's something that uh, you kind of dream in the back of your head someday you might be able to do, but it sounds so fantastic that I just can't hardly realize it yet, Ted. Piston ring problems prevented Bill Vukovic from qualifying until the third day of the time trials. 
Then, once the 1954 race was underway, there were several lead changes. But Jack McGrath dominated the race until the halfway point when Vukovic took the lead. Jimmy Bryan, a rugged driver with incredible stamina, pressured Vuki for several laps until a shock absorber broke on Bryan's dirt car, eliminating him as a serious threat. It caused him to take a tremendous physical pounding over the brick surface for the last 100 miles. Vukovic took the checkered flag for the second year in a row, and Brian crossed the finish line right beside Vuki, but one lap back to earn second place. In 1955, Bill Vukovic returned, out to do something no man had done before, to win three 500s in a row. Dinah Shore came from Hollywood to kiss the winner and sing the traditional back home again in Indiana before the start of the race. She established another first. She asked the audience to join in, something her predecessors had never done. done by Dinah Shore and she's doing a second chorus for the benefit of the crowd once again as hundreds and hundreds of brilliantly colored balloons have been released from a gigantic tent and soar skyward to add to the pageantry preparatory to the start of this 39th annual running of the 500 mile race. The great Wilbur Shaw had lost his life in a private plane crash on the eve of his birthday in October of 1954. The worldwide broadcast was dedicated to Wilbur's memory. Born October 31, 1902 in Shelbyville, Indiana. Died October 30, 1954 near Decatur, Indiana are the stone cold facts to mark the passing of this man. But in between, a long, long trail of accomplishment, of friendships, of inspiration by this little man with the infectious grin and the warm hand clasp. Never to be forgotten by us and by the thousands of others who respected and who loved him. The usual comment of any race driver is, I'll be back next year. And that is equally true of Wilbur Shaw, even today. He'll be back because he'll never go away in the hearts of those who knew him. And if you didn't know him, you missed something great. During the first 50 laps of the 55 race, an intense struggle developed between Jack McGrath and Bill Vukovic. Vuki finally took the lead, and McGrath dropped out with piston failure. Even as McGrath was stepping from his car of a very dramatic accident, and Jack Shapiro, stationed on the backstretch, was there to describe it. Number 27 with Roger Ward got into trouble uh, coming out of that southeast turn and started to slide down this backstretch. As he got to the bridge, he was sideways, and car number 39, driven by Johnny Boyd, the Sumar Special, went up and over him and bounced about, uh, oh, uh, 50 feet down the track. It lost all four wheels in the process. Roger Ward's car is only about, uh, oh, 20 feet away from us, right out in the middle of the track still. Then car number 68, to keep from hitting all of the trouble that was happening, went off into the infield to my left, and uh, it's sitting on the grass there. That's car number 68, the Westwood Gage Tool Special, uh, driven by Ed Elysian. Then car number 42 did the same thing, the trailer special driven by Al Keller, and uh, Bill Vukovic, evidently going to the outside to miss the trouble, went over the wall, and that car is still burning over there. Now, uh, the drivers 
Uh, car number 27, Roger Ward, got out and is over on the grass. He looks to be all right. Uh, Ed Elysian didn't hit anybody, and he was all right. Car number 42 with Al Keller driving, he looks to be all right. Uh, Johnny Boyd was still sitting in the car when it came to arrest uh, on its back. It was turned over, and uh, they uh, helped Johnny out of the car. He's sitting on the grass and looks to be all right. Now, what happened to Bill Vukovic? We have no information. Back in the pagoda, sadly, we made the official announcement of the demise of the great two-time winner. And we have some very, very disheartening news to relate to you. An official report from the Speedway Hospital here from Dr. Bonner, the director of medical staff at the Speedway. And in broadcasting this race now in our eighth consecutive year, we have never had to make such an announcement and we're most regretful. Bill Vukovic, three-time winner of the 500-mile race, almost trying for his third consecutive today, trapped in his car in the backstretch, was injured fatally. Bill Vukovic has died as a result of injuries suffered on the backstretch in the accident reported to you earlier on this broadcast. And now back to a couple more excerpts from my essay. I can't even remember the name of that first hotel located seven miles from the speedway. The final count was 15 people in that hotel room. Four on each bed laying sideways, a couple of kids in the bathtub, and everyone else finding space on the floor after pulling the top two mattresses off the beds. Except for me. Being the shortest of the kids, and the youngest, I had to sleep on the dresser. My father dutifully snoring beneath me on the floor, just in case I rolled off in the middle of the night. How could I possibly sleep with 15 people in one hotel room built for two, especially when I had never met 10 of them? I eventually learned that it was like this all over Indianapolis. The population of the city rises several thousand people for this weekend, and every room is booked a year in advance. The fathers started waking everyone up about 5 a.m. We wanted to be at the track and cooking breakfast by 8. The good spots were first come, first serve, and we had to get to our favorite spot in the infield grass, right behind the fence, coming out of turn two. That's where the drivers would power up for top speed needed on the backstretch. Now, top speed was needed for us to load up the cars and merge with the incredible traffic heading onto the speedway. The dads had a great system for this traffic. The lead car would open up a spot and let the rest of the pack in. It was even common for an adult to jump out of the lead car, stop traffic for our group, then jump back in the last car in line. One year, my dad even followed a taxicab driver down the center island. And I wonder why I have problems with traffic laws. A talented, star-studded contingent of 11 rookies made their Indianapolis debut in 1965, including Mario Andretti, Gordon Johncock, Al Unser, Billy Foster, Jerry Grant, Joe Leonard, and Maston Gregory. But 1965 would be an easy win for Colin Chapman and his world champion star, Jimmy Clark. Clark led all but 10 laps in one of the safest races ever. Lou Palmer awaited the arrival of the winner in victory lane. Did it go as smoothly as you had hoped? Well, there's no race is ever easy, but uh, I must say it went as smoothly as I'd ever hoped, and uh, the car ran beautifully throughout. And could, could we ask you, uh, just... Yes, please, come in. Come right on in. Uh, your, um, your fuel consumption in pit stops, they went as planned. How much were you carrying in the tank, maximum? Oh, I'm not too sure, around 60 somewhere. And you made all, as, just as many as you wished. Uh, you had no extra space. went completely as planned. There was no, no hitches whatever. Now, you had an opportunity to uh, go on the Grand Prix circuit. 
Uh, we had a Monaco race, uh, Graham Hill, I believe, won yesterday. You chose not to compete there. Is that a measure of the importance of this particular event, at least this year, for you? Well, I don't know. It's uh, probably partly then, probably partly a bit of determination in that uh, this is my third attempt, and uh, I don't know. I don't really believe the third time lucky thing, but uh, I'm beginning to believe it today. An international flavor again permeated Indianapolis in 1966 as the European drivers dominated the 50th running of the world's most prestigious auto race. After a virtually accident-free race in 1965, there was a terrible pileup on the first lap in 1966. The pace car pulls off. Pat Medan waves the flag, and the Golden Anniversary 500-mile race is on! The number one turn and Mike Ahern. We have an accident on the main stretch, Mike. Hold it. We have a terrible accident on the main stretch. A very bad accident on the main stretch before they reach the turn. Lou Palmer is closest to them. We can't count how many cars are out of the race. Number 39, also out. Number 96, parked against the wall. All drivers seem to be getting out of the equipment that's parked immediately in front of us here. And uh, we note that Bobby Grimm, all right. Here comes out of the All-American Racers Special, another of the competitors. Further down the track, beyond our view, entering the number one turn, Mike Ahern will be checking for you. We've got fire foam going on one of the pieces of equipment that is just at the beginning of the turn, and I won't attempt to identify that one for you at this time. And now you have an idea of the incredible memories that flooded through me when I saw this record for the first time in decades after bringing them home from my dad's. Our trips to Indy propelled the family on a lifelong love affair with the racetrack. Trips to Michigan International Speedway were the same as finding a dirt track in North Carolina while on vacation one year, where we saw a couple of future NASCAR stars. And the major connection my parents had to the Cleveland Grand Prix. Now I want to finish up with these paragraphs from the essay. I spent many first weekends in May at that speedway during my youth. My respect and love for my father was growing because of the many wonderful things he did for us on those trips. You haven't lived until you've seen a man six foot, 250 pounds, shimmy up a pole with a knife in his mouth to get a welcome race fans banner from the Texaco station. We still have that banner from the first year hanging in his basement. I do have to edit that. It is now hanging in one of my brother's garage. I attended that Saturday tradition for nine years straight, creating a new and wonderful experience every time I went. Even in later years, when I've sat in the stands at Michigan International Speedway or on the tarmac at Burke Lakefront Airport for the Cleveland Grand Prix, I reminisce about the uniqueness that makes the Indianapolis 500 the granddaddy of them all and the greatest spectacle in racing. Finally, in the early afternoon, the green flag was given for the start. And as the cars roared by, we had a fiery multiple car accident, and the race was red flagged and stopped. Now down the main stretch for the world's fastest flying start they come. The green flag is waved, and the 1973 Indianapolis 500-mile race is on! Yes, and what a battle for the lead. It's Bobby Unser shutting off Johnny Rutherford at the turn. Then it's Mark Donahue and Mario Andretti. Unser leads turn two at Howdy Bell. We have a tremendous crash here going to the number one turn in the back of the pack. Mike will take it back here once again. The red flag is out. The red flag is out. We'll not try to guess how many cars. Near the very back of the pack, something happened. Salt Walther, the most seriously injured, was hospitalized for almost three months, but was to return to racing the following year. Before the track was cleared, another downpour forced postponement until the second day. 
After a two-day rain delay, the race was started on its third attempt. And things went smoothly until the 59th lap, when Swede Savage hit the wall, coming out of turn four. The red flag is out and the race is being stopped. Had a man in the pit being hit by an official fire truck, and we have fire being put out as the race is stopped in the north end. Naturally, we're distressed, first of all, to hear about Swede Savage. That's first and foremost. Now to the north pit, a report from Chuck Marlowe. It appears that car number 40, driven by Swede Savage, was in the groove coming out of turn four when he apparently broke from that groove, whether of his own volition or losing control because of a mechanical or structural malfunction. The car began to slide, according to the tire marks, some 800 feet before the first impact with the wall, at which time this amazing burst of flame, the bright orange, dotted the sky and the area up in turn number four. The car then continued on down the wall, sliding on the wall. After having ruptured that tank, the car appears to have turned one complete time before it entered against the wall. After a delay of another hour, Chief Steward Harlan Fengler ordered the race restarted in single file. Finally, at 5.32 Indianapolis time, the red flag came out once again due to rain, which prohibited the resumption of the race. Gordon Johncock, who had overtaken race leader Bobby Unser by the 60th lap, was declared the winner. Johncock was interviewed in a soggy victory lane. Uh, I really hate to see a race end this way. I would surely like to went the 500 miles. I'm sure everybody else would have too, but I have my crew to thank. Everybody's worked on the automobile. If they hadn't been able, you know, hadn't done the job they'd done so I could finish it, I wouldn't be here now. Billy Vukovic, the son of the two-time Indy winner, finished second. The highest finish ever by the son of a former winner. Coincidentally, if Bill had won, it would have been 20 years to the day that his father had taken the checkered flag in 1953. Finishing third, his best ever, national driving champion Roger McCluskey was interviewed by Bob Forbes in the pit area. I said the way your car was running, you felt you had a good chance to catch it. I think we did, but you never know. You know, we didn't, they called the race short and Gordy won and I congratulate him. Well, all you have to do now, you finished third and you're wearing third in your car, so all you'd have to do is win the driving championship with number one, and maybe that might happen then next year. Well, that would uh, certainly wouldn't make me unhappy, but I'd, I'd like to win here and then do that. A.J. Foyt, the winningest driver in USAC history, grabbed the pole in 1974, still the man with the best chance of winning four times. By now, A.J. had started 17 consecutive times, eclipsing the record of 16 set by Cliff Berger and Chet Miller. Hardly a dark horse anymore, but a man who had never completed the 500 in 10 tries was Johnny Rutherford, who posted the second fastest qualifying speed, but had to start from the 25th position since mechanical problems forced him to qualify the second weekend. Over 10,000 very colored balloons filled the air as over 300,000 spectators waited for the green flag. Fellow Texans A.J. Foyt and Johnny Rutherford battled for the lead lap after lap. Then Rutherford pulled into the pits right behind Foyt. Now to Foyt's making a pit stop. We'll pick him up. Lou, can you see him? Got it. Just arriving now, coming in slowly, but actually gaining time coming into the pit area where you can go a little quicker than under the 80 mile an hour set pacer light system we're using here. And there goes a wheel nut retainer from Foyt's car. They've got a spare ready to go with it, though. Foyt takes a glass of water, just a sip from it, throws it out. Rutherford is in immediately behind him. So Foyt's car is now off the jacks, now back up on again. He's pointing to that front tire assembly. 
and uh, the right front indication that he did want it and he's really furious steaming in the cockpit as rutherford already has made his pit stop and pulls on around him boyd is not a happy man he wants new right front rubber and he wants it now they're finally getting an impact wrench on it and it is off the new tire is on that is uh, yet another pit stop made uh Jan Opperman going by at the moment. Boyd finally has the tire that he wants, and they're pushing him away, but Johnny Rutherford is up in front as Voigt now rejoins the field under a slow pacer-light yellow situation. Voigt overtook Rutherford several times to lead the race again, but A.J. was forced to retire on the 142nd lap. Rutherford completed his first Indianapolis race and won it as well. And here to call the winner is the voice of the 500 St. Collins. And here's the checkered flag for Johnny Rutherford, winner of the 1974 Indianapolis 500-mile race. Lou Palmer was there to greet the excited winner. John, for a guy who's never led a lap here, you did pretty good today. Well, thank you, uh, Lou. By golly, it's the that one lap was the only one I wanted to lead, the last one. And I can't say enough for this McLaren crew. They they work very hard. We've had some setbacks. We've lost two or three engines and. And we've just had all kinds of trouble, and uh, by golly, it paid off today. I, I had my doubts when we started so far back, but uh, yeah, the way everything worked out is great. This concludes over 50 years of the greatest spectacle in racing. Each year at the sign-off of our broadcast, it has become customary to recite a poem or a serious bit of philosophy to salute the 500-mile race winner. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you'd like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost a cinch, you won't. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. For out in the world we find, success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in your state of mind. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man. But sooner or later, the man who wins is the one who thinks he can. So until next May, this is Sid Collins, the voice of the 500, wishing you good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are right now. We're here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the crossroads of America. Goodbye. Now, I've done my share of PA announcing, but I never get a chance to do this. Ready? <clears throat> Gentlemen. Nope. Nope. Let's say it as it should be. Drivers, start your engines. Now, if you're interested, I'll drop the link for the full essay in this episode's notes. Thank you for tuning into Volume 22, The Indy 500, However You Did. If you want more information about this podcast, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 23, Anniversary Special for the Cafe Italiano. Go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>